This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, we have an amazing episode coming up for you, the Good Faith fam. We have with us friend of the pod, senior contributing editor of the Jerusalem Post and diplomatic correspondent and Twitter legend, Lahav Harkov. So let's get into it. Especially these past two or three weeks, the book of Numbers has really been on my mind because it's the first time in the Bible that we encounter a journalistic challenge. The Israelites are waiting in the desert. They pretty recently escaped from Egypt and just received the law at Mount Sinai. So they're ready for the next stage of their journey, which is heading to the promised land. And you can imagine this was like literally the only thing any Israelite at the time was talking about. I mean, we're on our way to this land that we've only heard stories and rumors about from grandparents or great grandparents. But what's it really like? So God tells Moses to send some of the leading Israelite citizens to advance ahead into the land of Israel, explore gather information, and report back to the people on what they see there. And it's the first journalistic challenge in recorded history. And the Israelites fail miserably. And we're going to talk more about the nature of that failure in just a moment with our guest, but I think you can already see the parallels to the events of these past few weeks. It just seems like reporting on the land of Israel from the outside more than an ancient Israelite challenge is just a basic human challenge that remains with us to this day. And so to unpack all of this and talk about how we move forward, I brought on one of the world's experts on reporting about Israel. She's the diplomatic correspondent and senior contributing editor at the Jerusalem Post and returning guest, friend of the pod, Lahav Harkov is here. Lahav Thanks for being back on the pod. Thanks so much for inviting me back. I'm happy to be here. So if we're thinking about the challenge of reporting on the land of Israel, so I want to get into sort of the the biblical wisdom here. But first, can we take a step back? You are literally in the trenches. You're on the ground. Well, not literally in the actual trenches. There, there are probably actual trenches, right? But <laughs> Weirdly, I'm like less in the trenches now than I used to be because the, the funny thing is I used to write about politics and right. politics are really slow in wartime. And so I would volunteer to go to Israel South and report on, I don't know, you know, people whose houses were struck by rockets and things like that. This time around, I'm the diplomatic reporter right. and I'm nowhere near the South but I'm super, super busy all the time talking to all these different ambassadors and watching debates in the UN and things like that. So here's the thing. Even talking about the South as if it's different from the North of Israel is such like a level of journalistic achievement that I feel like the vast majority of foreign reporters have failed, or at least the people that Americans or Westerners are getting their news from. So what's your perspective? And by the way, it could be that there are reporters on the ground who are doing a great job. They're just not getting platformed. But what's your perspective as someone who's been in country, who speaks the language, you know, the last uh, the last few weeks? How how have you perceived the situation? What's different? What's the same? And what's your perspective? The reporting on Israel has always been pretty bad. And I often read the things in Israel and I think to myself, How badly are they reporting on other countries? You know, like if I'm reading something about, I don't know, like Korea, are they messing it up as badly as they're messing up Israel? And during wartime, it's even worse because there's constantly this like moral equivalency created, right? Like Israel is repeatedly fighting these like mini wars, right? In Israel, we just call them operations, but they're close to wars, but they're against a a terrorist organization. 
that is indiscriminately firing rockets into Israel's civilian population. And they're firing it from within their own civilian population, right? And then they're fighting against an army. Now, the way the news likes to present it is they say, oh, these are these weak people who all they have are rockets and they're fighting against this big, strong army. Whereas the other perspective is that, sure, they're not as strong as the army, but their strategy, their tactic that they're using is to attack children, to attack civilians. Whereas Israel is trying to be as accurate as possible and to pinpoint, you know, quote unquote, military targets where these terrorists are keeping their weapons or, you know, have intelligence bases and things like that. So for starters, I feel like the focus, like in the framing is just extremely biased and not reflective of the reality and the nuances of what's going on. And then there's a constant talk about proportionality, which drives because if, if Israel were to attack Gaza proportionately, it would mean firing over 4,000 rockets without trying to pinpoint the targets. The fact is that Israel struck Gaza a quarter of the amount of times that Hamas shot at Israel. All of those targets were what's called military targets, but the vast majority of the casualties, like about three quarters of them, were actually Hamas terrorists. So that's the other thing that people like to say militants. You could be a militant vegetarian, right? It doesn't mean anything. We're talking about people who want to erase Israel off the map. They want to ethnically cleanse Israel. It's in their charter. And, and they say it repeatedly. It's not just like, oh, the charter was written in the 80s. It's not relevant. Like they say this all the time, but these somehow are not seen as relevant points. And it's interesting when you talk about proportionality. So I suppose to, to borrow from the title of Dara Horan's latest book, people love dead Jews. Yes. And I think you get into this weird thing where it's like, oh, proportionality. What's so like a not enough Jews have died to satisfy you? And I think the answer to that question is actually maybe not consciously or explicitly, but there's like a pathology in the West with its long multi-thousand year history of, of anti-Judaism of like, yes, it would be better for there to be more dead Jews. Like the subtext is like, yes, of course it would be better to have more dead Jews. Where do you think all of our moral energy as a society comes from? The Anne Franks, the Jesuses, meaning like, Dead Jews have fueled the entire moral history of the West, and we would like for there to be more of them. <laughs> right. Like, it makes sense to them if the Jews are downtrodden. But the minute we start standing up for ourselves and protecting ourselves, right? Like, the reason for the discrepancy is not because Israel is attacking Gaza more than Gaza is attacking Israel. It's because Israel is protecting its citizens with its anti-missile system, the Iron Dome. But, you know, Jews standing up for themselves, that's not something they can tolerate. They want the Jew who turns the other cheek. And it's also meaning Jews standing up for themselves and defending themselves isn't like morally useful for the West. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. In other words, the West loves to have dead Jews that it can then mourn. It can then, you know, uh, universalize that it could then use for all sorts of other purposes that the West has always used dead Jews for. But live Jews, resisting Jews, strong Jews don't help the West in any way. So I feel like we're in this weird place. But that actually is a good way to think, I think, segue back to the book of numbers, which is another thing that I find you pointing out on Twitter so perceptively so often. And it's you, Mati Friedman, Shani Moore. I see so many people on, on uh, Elon Levy. I see so many people pointing this out on Twitter correctly, and it just doesn't seem to get the airplay that it should, you know, at least on the scale that I wish it would, which is that it's so easy to kind of look at Israel through the lens of like one issue or one perspective. And there's no sense that it's like an actual real place. 
Matthew Friedman has this example where he's like, it would be like looking at Mexico exclusively through the lens of cartel violence. Like, there are lots of things that happen in Mexico. That's one of them. To be fair, I just do you think American media looks at Mexico as more than cartel violence. No, I don't. Pers- maybe music, music also. Right. Like, per- I don't think the American media gives a fair picture of Mexico either. Yeah. And it goes to what you said before of like, what other stories are we like completely messing up? But I think the fascinating thing about looking at the story, you know, in the book of numbers of these leaders, you know, you know, in Hebrew, we often refer to them as the Miraglim, the spies who are kind of reporting on the land of Israel, the story of sort of like missing the picture in the land of Israel is an ancient one. So you've given that story some thought. How does that relate to your experience as a journalist covering land of Israel? I started thinking about this in terms of journalism a few years ago when we talked about sort of like fake news and sensationalism. I mean, when you look at the story of the spies, they start out with pretty good journalistic instructions. Like um, Moses, Moshe gives them a list of questions and I, I can read it to you. They said like, you know, how is the land? Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak? Are they few or numerous? You know, how are the cities in which they dwell? Are they open or are they fortified? Is the land fertile or lean? Are there trees or not? You know, this is a, a good list of questions when you're going out to look at a land and report back to the people who want to live there. And they come back and they give like a solid answer in the beginning, right? They start with, you know, we arrived at the land to which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. And the the sort of tradition, the, the commentaries say that they had enormous giant fruit bigger than we're used to seeing these days. And they said the people that dwell in the land is powerful. The cities are fortified and very great. We also saw there the offspring of the giant. And there's a list of some of the different nations that live there. So then Caleb comes, you know, and he says, like, don't worry about those nations. I'm sure we can still conquer the land. And then at that point, the rest of the spies come and they want to make this story more exciting. (laughs) They come and they make it sensational. Up until then, they gave, I think, a reasonable, they gave sort of the two sides where these are the good things, these are the bad things. And the moment that they're sort of being challenged to some extent, I don't even think Caleb's challenging them on the facts, right? He's trying to encourage the Jewish people. But the moment that these people feel a challenge, they sort of double down and they make their story even more sensational. We can't go. The people are too strong for us. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. And then they go sort of on and on. They say we were grasshoppers compared to the size of the giants. These are like the first like Twitter blue check marks and they instigate like the first Twitter mob in history. Exactly. Is it That's totally it. Because you have the two spies, you have Caleb and Joshua, who were saying, you know, it's okay, we can do it. And they're trying to sort of be moderate and reasonable. And then you have the other 10 piling on, you know, and being like, what are you talking about? We can't do it. You know, why, <laughs> why does God want to send us there? This is such a social media parable. This is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And I just, I just think that it's like, in some ways, it's like such a cautionary tale about sensationalizing instead of just like looking at the facts and trying to lay them out in a reasonable manner. And in the end, right, you know, in the Jewish tradition, we see them as people who who sinned, who told Lashon forbidden speech because they were really stretching the truth in a way that was slanderous of the Holy Land. And, you know, for journalists, it's unethical behavior. If this was a real journalistic story, it would be told unethically. And it's so interesting because now I guess I'll put on my historian hat for a second One of the fascinating things historically about this period, when the Israelites are journeying to the promised land, is that the whole geopolitical situation has completely changed. These are people who kind of like grew up as the underclass of one Bronze Age empire, the Egyptian empire, but unbeknownst to them 
And, you know, the text of Exodus speaks about it, right? So in Exodus, the verse talks about how God doesn't want to take the Israelites sort of up the Gaza coast because they would encounter the Philistines. Why is that important? Because the Philistines were not an, an ancient Near Eastern people. They were an Aegean people who were most notable archaeologically because what they did is they kind of come in and inaugurate the Iron Age. They bring with them Iron Age weapons, advanced technology, and they're this like unstoppable force that the Egyptians are, are sort of frightened of even the Egyptians. And so kind of like unbeknownst to the Israelites as they're kind of wandering around in the desert, and it's not like they were these cosmopolitan citizens of Egypt, the whole world around them has changed. And they don't know this, right, because they're not dealing with like modern archaeological terms, but they're on the cusp of the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And I sometimes feel like the fiasco with this sensationalized reporting from Israel, it's not just sensationalism, although that's primarily what it is. It's also the fact that you have people who are this sort of self-appointed intelligentsia of the society that are analyzing the world completely in terms that maybe made sense 100 years ago, but don't make any more sense today. And I feel like today there's like no grappling with the contemporary realities of Israel as a country. So like the best example I can think of, and I'd love for you to kind of help us unpack this, is... People have, and Mati Friedman actually, I think, commented about this in The Atlantic recently, that the image that most Americans have of Israel is like the plot of Exodus, like Leon Uris's Exodus, right? Where it's like these kind of European refugees trying to make it in this land. But really, contemporary Israeli society is like majority Mizrahi. Like Americans are analyzing Israel as a country that just doesn't exist anymore and it's completely shifted. So like if you are telling a sort of an American Western audience about what Israeli society and culture is like, what are the things that you find, like one or two things that you find that people just don't know that you would wish they would know? I mean, it's really hard to like encompass a whole culture in that way, right? But like, right. I feel like when an American who's not Jewish and doesn't live in like New York, LA, Miami, a few key places, and they think about Jews, like they think that we're like Woody Allen kind of like, or, you know, there are a few Howard Wallowitz on the Big Bang Theory, like that were these like <laughs> sort of like neurotic, can't eat cheese, <laughs> allergic to everything. <laughs> you know, obsessed with our mothers. And, you know, and that's like better than at least them thinking that we like control all the banks and the media. It's like why everybody assumes that George Costanza is Jewish, even though he's not, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> right. Totally. And in Israel, people don't recognize that stereotype. It would just be like a nerd. Right. You know what I mean? Because that's not like an inherently Jewish quality. I guess in the trendy parlance of the day, it's like, how certain people deal with their inherited trauma, I guess, but to, not in Israel. To quote another Jewish stereotype, not that there's anything wrong with that, you know. <laughs> right, right. But um, it, in Israel, I mean, the whole ethos, right, is like that we're Jews who stand up for ourselves and we're not cowed. And I don't I don't mean that there aren't nerds in this country. There are. But, you know, again, to generalize, you know, the nerds are using their nerdiness to be leaders in cybersecurity and not to um, go to therapy every week. Not that there's anything wrong with therapy if you need it, but I mean, in this like stereotypical way. Israelis are very proud of being Jewish, I think. Plenty of American Jews are proud of being Jewish as well. And I think that people don't get like the Middle Eastern flavor. Like there are enough Americans who think that things are black and white. Like the American obsession with race is like incredibly corrosive to American culture, I think. And trying to sort of make Israel fit into those boxes just makes no sense. I mean, I could send someone a picture of Ayad Tamimi. I don't, I don't know if you remember her. She was this teenager who got into an altercation with a soldier. I think she kicked the soldier and then she was arrested. 
Um, and she was like 17 years old at the time. And she has blonde hair and blue eyes and looks as white as I do. And actually, I mean, if we if we have to and, talk and about And the soldier, if I'm not mistaken, was like Mizrahi from like North Africa. I don't even remember, but chances right. are, right? Like the majority right. of Jews in Israel are, are not Ashkenazi Jews. You know, and the army is mostly Jews, but also some Arabs. So, you know, chances are that the person was darker than her. <laughs> but like, that's why talking about this conflict in terms of the actual color of someone's skin is really pointless. I mean, it just doesn't apply. And then there's like, you know, people compare the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians to police brutality against Black Americans. And to me, I'm like, you're not serving the cause of Black Americans by making that comparison because the reason that Israel strikes in Gaza or the reason that Israeli police officers go on the Temple Mount is because these are people who are attacking other people, right? Like on the Temple Mount, they were throwing fireworks and rocks at people who were worshiping at the Western Wall, which is right below the Temple Mount. If that's a comparison you're making, then you're also blaming Black people for police brutality, which I think is... Insane, right? Insane, yeah. (laughs) So I'm trying to think of like a, a way forward. I mean, again, this just seems like such a toxic dynamic to have. And yet it's hard to see a way forward through it. So like, how do we improve the discourse? How do we make the conversation better? I don't know. I, I've read a lot of different people these past few weeks and their views and like, like Liel Leibowitz, who I know is also a friend, friend of, the, of pod. the pod. Right. <laughs> and he, and he mentioned the podcast in this article where he sort of just says like, you have to pick a side. You're either a Zionist or you're an anti-Zionist and you need to like stand up for that side. I see the pull of that, but I also see the pull of people like Mati Friedman, who you mentioned, who, I mean, he is a Zionist, I'm fairly certain, um, but <laughs> it is trying to strike like a moderate course and, and sort of make an appeal in a way that people who aren't involved in activism on one side or the other will will understand and find interesting and trying to make that case in places like The Atlantic and The New York Times. So I, I'm caught between those two positions. I love Mati's work. But sometimes I'm more angry like Liel. I don't have the answers. I will say that I'm angrier and more pessimistic than I was before because I've been living in Israel since 2005 now. And there's a weird dichotomy where like among people, things seem to be getting worse. Like regular people seem to like Israel less, whether it's like all these celebrities or social media but countries like Israel more, you know, I write about diplomacy and like Israel's actual international relations are like the best they've ever been. It's a very weird dichotomy. That is really strange. Actually, I want to talk about that a little bit. So one of the strange things about these last few weeks is this is the first time that I can ever remember. Like I'd heard about this before, but I'd never experienced it. This was the first time where I really experienced friends, family en masse in Israel texting me just to see if we're okay, if we're safe, if we're in danger, like just checking on us. You know, this was the kind of thing where I just remember, you know, back during the days of the Second Intifada or even during stabbing attacks and the stabbing Intifada, you know, we're always texting friends, family, kids, relatives in Israel, like checking on them, making sure they're okay. This was the first time where I felt like the dynamic shifted because of anti-Semitism in the diaspora. I think, you know, Yahoo had an article that reported on data that, you know, the last couple of months have seen or the last couple of weeks have seen an, a 68 percent upsurge in reports of anti-Semitic attacks. The last 10 years have seen a 40 percent or, or 20, sorry, 28 percent upswing in anti-Semitic attacks in the U.S. and in the West. 
It'd probably be higher if it was narrowed to like five or six years or so, because I feel like it started around 2014, 2015. For sure, for sure. And it doesn't seem to have like, it doesn't seem to always even have like a straightforward political valence as much as American political commentators of either side would like it to be so. But sometimes it just seems hard to connect it to anything. I guess my question is, as an Israeli, do you perceive at all like a shift amongst Israeli Jews when it comes to thinking about the diaspora, like things in the diaspora are becoming less safe? I think that there was always a perception among Israeli Jews that being Jewish outside of Israel is less safe. Right. And I think that America was usually the exception to that. In America, it was more like being a Jew is really expensive and there's a big danger of assimilation. Right. Um, whereas in Europe, it was like, the golden you know, Medina. <laughs> right. In, in Europe, it was like, you know, wear a hat and not a kippah on the street. And now that's shifted that it's America too. I've seen people talking about it, that they're worried about going out with a kippah or worried about wearing a Jewish star necklace and things like that. I wish that I could say that like Israelis feel like a greater connection to the diaspora, that they know more about the diaspora. Probably not. Right. And it's sad to me, but I do think it has a lot to do with the fact that the majority of Israelis are the descendants of refugees from the Middle East and North Africa. And those communities in the U.S. are much smaller. I happen to have grown up in a community of mostly Syrian Jews. You know, like I had a class of like 100 kids in grade school and there were like five of us who were Ashkenazi and the rest were Syrian. You guys were J-dubs, you know. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But that's like the total polar opposite of most people's Jewish experience in America. I think that there are a lot of people in Israel who don't actually have like family in America who they like relate to in that way. And so they don't get it as much. The anti-Semitism in New York and in L.A., in the past few weeks has gotten into the news in Israel. But my personal opinion is that it should have been closer to the beginning of the news. You know, I mean, like it should have been, it should be bigger news than it is. Wow. Yeah. So going back to normies for a second, one of the things that I think tragically sort of got lost in the last couple of weeks was that there did seem to be some sort of like paradigm shift or maybe paradigm shift is too strong, but something felt really different in Israel the last couple of months and and maybe the last like, you know, two years which is things just felt like they were on a trajectory towards more normality. So to kind of work backwards, like Ram, Mansour Abbas's Islamist party, was going to join a coalition government. That was a major turn. And not just a coalition government, potentially even like a Likud coalition government. That seemed like a historic crossing of the Rubicon moment, even if it wasn't necessarily always perceived as such. But I think there was something important about that. And then, you know, you put that in the larger context of normalization agreements with the UAE, with Bahrain, with with Oman, with Morocco, and with Sudan. And it seemed like the forces for more cohesion in the region felt like they were at least gradually on the ascendancy. And now it feels like forces like Hamas and other kind of forces for dissolution in the region kind of stole the narrative. Is that right? And if so, how do we kind of get back on pace? So I feel like we need to sort of take things in proportion over like, yes, this was a conflict and it was bad, but it's also maybe if we were talking two months ago, we would be having a different conversation, right? And so I hesitate to give Hamas that power that they could really hijack the whole conversation. Great point. Especially in Israeli politics, I thought that this was going to kill any chance of a coalition relying on Mansour Abbas 
But it seems at this point that everyone has sort of gone back to their negotiating positions where they were before this all started. Wow. They took a pause and now they're going back. Mansour Abbas specifically, you know, there was all this violence in Israel in mixed Jewish Arab cities. And it was mostly Arab violence against Jews, including a lot of synagogues that were set on fire in the city of Lod. But there were also cases of Jewish violence against Arabs, um, which were, yeah, really, truly abhorrent. I used to complain that Israelis use the word lynching wrong. I know. I had to explain this to so many friends and acquaintances. Yeah. But I felt like in this case, they were using it right. And that was really sad. Yeah. Not just because of the word, obviously, because it was just a terrible, terrible thing that happened that someone did. People did. Anyways, to the point I was making, I think Mansour Abbas said sort of a lot of important things at that time against the violence and in favor of coexistence, even at a time when it would be challenging. And so I think that people give him credit for that. And so he is still a player. And the fact that he is still a player, I hope, will at least in the political field, keep the chances of coexistence alive. In the social area, it's hard to say. I mean, on, on my podcast, on the Jerusalem Post podcast, we interviewed a woman who lives in Lod. And she said it is very hard for her to sort of like look her neighbors in the eye and like trust them anymore. Because like even if her neighbors weren't the ones who were like lighting synagogues on fire, that they weren't condemning it in any way, you know, that they weren't standing up against it in any way. And I understand that. I mean, what do you do when you feel like your neighbors are endangering you, you know? So I think that'll be really hard in that way. But I hope that it'll heal, you know, that they'll take time and there'll be some sort of healing process. So looking forward now, it's funny. I I mean, it wasn't funny. It was sad. But during the rocket attacks, so my sister was sending me from her bomb shelter, like all the different like memes that were going around all the WhatsApp groups in Israel. And one of them was like, well, you know, it was like when the rockets like really started coming down. And one of them was like, well, no one's going to work tomorrow. There's no school. Like, let's just have elections. Right. Why not? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So where are we headed now? Are we are we going to another elections? Is someone going to pull a coalition out of this? What's your take on the next couple of months? So we're talking like in a week in which like every single day, basically, Yair Lapid, who's the opposition leader and currently has the position of being able to form the next government. So like every day he's putting out another statement with a different party that they reached an agreement to be in a coalition together. So he's slowly trying to build and and basically his strategy right now is that he's trying to get all the parties that he knows will be on his side first in order to come to Naftali Bennett, who's more or less going to be the kingmaker here. The kingmaker. And the, the head of the Amina party to say, look, this coalition is ready. We have saved you these cabinet postings for the leadership of your party. Come join us. I'm not sure it will work, but I think that there is a chance. I unfortunately think that the most likely scenario is fifth elections Mm. because all of these coalitions are very difficult. These are all needles that are hard to thread, whether it's Bennett joining with Lapid, Bennett is solidly right wing and so is his party. And that government will have some left wing parties in it that will probably have about it'll have about equal power to the right. And I'm not sure that Bennett will be able to do that. It's going to be a big political risk for him. In a way, he already took the risk because he's talked so much about doing it, you know, and so he's already been like protested against. Today, there was finally a protest in favor that the people in his party were in favor (laughs) of joining an alternative government did like a demonstration in support. Demonstrations in support of something just seems so like (laughs) anti-American. Yeah, although, you know, something this is a little off topic, but like something I was thinking about this week 
Do you remember the Second Intifada when a quarter million American Jews demonstrated in support of Israel in Washington? I mean, that was like an incredibly powerful experience. Yeah. Not only do I remember that, that was like, I know couples who met and are now married because of that, you know, like because they met there. It was like the biggest thing in the world. It was awesome. For like 10 years until I got a smartphone, I had this little Bencher and Minchamariv, like afternoon and evening <laughs> prayers book that my school gave to us that it was like to fit in your wallet when we went to that protest. I just carry around with me everywhere. Unbelievable. Wow. Okay. So just because I'm an optimist by nature, these were a very difficult last couple of weeks and the weeks ahead, you know, look like they're still going to be difficult. You know, if we're painting a positive scenario, aspirationally speaking, for, you know, the next couple of weeks, months, What's the positive aspirational lahav take on what could be ahead of us? In the next few months? Well, if I want to be extremely optimistic, there's a lot of talk in the international community about wanting to help rebuild Gaza, but to do it in a different way than they did in the past. Because the problem is Hamas controls Gaza. There are humanitarian needs in Gaza. These people need electricity, they need water, they need their houses rebuilt. How do you do that without allowing Hamas to then take the cement for the new buildings and then build tunnels that they use to attack Israel, right? I don't have the answer to that question, but it seems like the Americans and even more so the Europeans, surprisingly even more so the Europeans, are determined to figure that out because they are sick of pouring money into Gaza and having it be a waste. I have to say, Germany really being a very positive figure over the last couple of weeks is is quite a plot twist. (laughs) You know, it's Germany, it's Austria, it's Hungary. I'm like, what's going on over there? Austria, Hungary and Germany having Israel's back is like Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones level of like character rehabilitation. hundred percent. hundred percent. Like the Czech Republic, I would argue is like the most pro-Israel country in Europe, but they always have been. And there's actually like streets in Israel named after all these Czech politicians. There's something there, but the rest of that region, it's like, okay. It's like the Adam Sandler song. It's like Germany, not a friend of the Jews, but listen, I guess things can change. Who knows? Yeah. 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 I mean, Germany feels like and they should, feels like a historic responsibility for the future safety of the Jewish people. You know, and it began with reparations in the 1950s. Right. It began with reparations and um, it continues in in international form. It doesn't mean that they don't criticize Israel. Sure, sure. But certainly from Hamas, they're supportive. In places like Austria and Hungary, I think the shift came actually after the civil war in Syria and a lot of refugees came in and there was you know, terrorism or just other issues with with the refugee population and people sort of see Israel as this like vanguard of fighting for a more liberal democratic vision of the Middle East. And so they connect more closely. They connect to that. But yeah, so all of these countries are sort of like, we don't want to keep pouring money into Gaza like it's a bottomless pit. And so I don't know what the answer is. So I'm going to be extremely optimistic by saying this. But I think that if someone comes up with a solution for Gaza not to be a bottomless pit, that it would help less extreme factors in Gaza rather than Hamas. Amen. May it come speedily in our days. Lahav, last question. Can you plug the Jerusalem Post podcast? What's exciting there? So I started as co-host about a month ago. And and the podcast started, I think, like two months ago. And we each week talk about a couple of big topics in the news. And we bring in people to interview who are experts in their field or experiencing the stories that are in the news to talk about it. 
And if I may say so myself, I think Yaakov Katz, the editor in chief of the Jerusalem Post, and I have like a very good banter sort of rapport. So good. It is so good. Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Oh my God. Lahav, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Trying to understand and report on the land of Israel, really any country with all their complexities, but especially one that occupies such an important place in the hearts and souls of so many hundreds of millions of people across the globe, is quite literally the oldest journalistic challenge in the history of humanity. Just read the book of Numbers. And if we want to do better, which we must, the best way forward, as Lahav explained, is to avoid the mistake the Israelites make in the book of Numbers. Stop giving so much oxygen to sensationalism. Stop letting bad faith actors leverage our unfortunate but natural human fascination with the obscene. Search out the truth and be prepared for the reality that it's going to be complex. If we can accept that, we'll be at least a little further along our way towards bringing peace, justice, and compassion to a world that sorely needs it. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us today. And if you like what you heard, then the best thing you can do is give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do, and if you review us, hit me up on Twitter so I can let the world know that you are amazing. That's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.